This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When John Miller's son was born, doctors failed to diagnose a rare and deadly medical condition despite using newborn screening that was supposed to detect it. Doctors told him his infant was going to die. His son was diagnosed correctly in time as having tyrosinemia, a genetic disorder characterized by elevated blood levels of the amino acid tyrosine, the result of an enzyme deficiency. The experience led Miller to create NOTA, the Network of Tyrosinemia Advocates. We spoke to Miller about his advocacy, the need for addressing a problem with newborn screening, and why from the earliest days his organization has fought for access to needed medications for tyrosinemia patients around the world. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me, Danny. We're going to talk about tyrosinemia, your organization, NOTA, and some lessons on newborn screening. Let's start with tyrosinemia first. What is it? How rare is it? How does it manifest itself? And how does it progress? So tyrosinemia is a metabolic disorder, um, and it is classified as ultra-rare. It affects about 175 children in the United States currently, um, and only about 1,500 patients in the world. Um, I'm saying children because uh, before the um, development of NTBC, which is the treatment for it, this was a fatal disease for infants. So our population is growing thanks to the, uh, thanks to the development of the drug, but there's not a lot of patients right right there right now. We don't have anybody over the age of 30. Um, so what, what it does is when you have um, the, in the digestive tract, there is our bodies break down protein into a healthy manner, and, and there's a lot of chemical reactions that happen. And with tyrosinemia, uh, down the line of, of the chemical breakdown, something goes wrong. And instead of producing a healthy amino acid, the liver produces a chemical called succinylacetone, and that chemical is 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 a very bad, very bad uh, chemical. And what it does is it 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 causes nodules in the liver, it causes liver cancer. But most importantly, it'll it'll put you in liver failure, and then ultimately kidney failure, and then and 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 then you get a the, the child will get ascites uh, really badly, uh, and and it just goes downhill from there. How is tyrosinemia treated today? So tyrosinemia is treated, well, the first thing is the diagnosis is, is most critical. Um, that's why we're going to talk later about newborn screening. But 
assuming that the child received a diagnosis on the newborn screening and they are able to catch the disease before it progresses, it's treated by uh, giving the child NTBC and starting the child on a low-protein diet where it, it, uh, it has a medically modified formula uh, that, that is missing the two uh, proteins that the child cannot digest, tyrosine and phenylalanine. Phenylalanine, by default, has tyrosine in it. If the child is not caught on newborn screening and is a clinical diagnosis, then the treatment is going to be a little bit more intensive. It's the same, essentially the same treatment that you would do, except you have to do a lot more blood work. You have to you have to do a lot more scans. You have to monitor that liver. You have to watch the recovery, and you have to check. Um, for a lot of you know side effects and things of that nature, and of course time is now a, a factor. So a lot of the hospitals in the in the country don't even have the medicine, the CNTBC, because it's so rare. So you, if you have a child that's literally on death's doorstep, you may have to you know get the medicine literally just flown in from one facility to another. They sometimes they reach out to other patients and say, "Can we borrow a couple pills until the, until the rest of the pills get here?" It's pretty pretty intense. And how difficult is it for patients to adhere to a specialized diets and use supplements and medicinal foods? So the answer to that is more or less for the parents of the child because the children typically by the time they're of age where they can make their own decisions about what they want to eat, this is all they've ever known. This is all they've ever eaten. This is their whole history since they've been born. They've always been on a low-protein diet. They've always had their special milk, quote-unquote, and they've always had this pill that they take in the morning at night. Um, but the parents, there's a huge culture shock initially when you get the diagnosis that you can never feed your child any protein. I mean, think about that. I mean, imagine telling a parent, a mother that she can never give her child macaroni and cheese, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, chicken nuggets, you know, how do you, how do you tell them that they can't have a happy meal? You know what I mean? It's, it's definitely a culture shock. Once they get over that and they get over the, all, all the, you know, the, the depression and things that come along with that and they become strong again, then it's not so bad. And the parents really seem to, um, find peace with it. And, and, and some actually even enjoy cooking, making special bread and special low-protein foods for their kids. It gives them a, a sense of empowerment. Tyrosinemia is part of a routine newborn screening. Your son Evan was screened when he was born, and he was given a clean bill of health despite having the condition. Why wasn't it initially detected? Can, can you explain what happened? Sure. So Evan was born in 2009. And you would assume that in our society in 2009 that the newborn screening would have been, you know, perfect. It would have it would be screening everything that it's supposed to be screening, and it would be doing so efficiently. And that's what the general public would believe. It's not true. Um, and what happened here was not only was Evan giving a false negative for the test for tyrosinemia, but we were given false hope because New Jersey at the time told us, you know, if you read their information, that they were screening for tyrosinemia. And, I mean, we had no reason to concern ourselves with tyrosinemia. We'd never heard of it, couldn't even pronounce it. But they're claiming to test for tyrosinemia, and what they're doing is they're looking for elevated levels of tyrosine. The problem with that is that it doesn't have elevated levels of tyrosine until it starts eating food. 
and uh, when the baby is first born, the mother's liver is processing all the tyrosine that the child can't process. So if you were to do a blood test on a newborn, you, you are likely to miss it, believe it or not. And so early on, and somewhere around 2003, it was initially suggested to the NIH that they don't test for tyrosine, but they test for that chemical I spoke of earlier, t succinylacetone. Because if a child has succinylacetone in its bloodstream, it has tyrosinemia, period. End of discussion, that's it. You cannot miss them that way. You get 99% instead of, and I don't know the percentages, so I don't want to, I know that that's 99%, but I, with tyrosinemia, with tyrosine, I believe it was, you know, 80% or something. And I'm sorry, but that 20% of children deserve better. My son was fell between the cracks there, and they told us everything was fine. Go home. Enjoy. Your baby's perfect. And we went home and started feeding our child, but we didn't realize that we were murdering our child. And uh, it was that took a long time to, to get peace with, you know? Has anything been done to change newborn screening since then? You know, there's been a long fight with that, and to be honest with you, that is a huge, huge goal of mine. Um, I traveled to the NIH. I spoke at the Newborn Screening Advisory Committee's meeting, and I made them aware that even though the NIH has mandated that these states, that every state in the union test for succinylacetone as a primary marker, not a, con not a confirmatory marker, but a primary marker, there were still at the time, there were still, it's arguable, if there was between 8 and 11 states that were not in compliance. And that was as of 2015. Now, here we are in 2018, and we're right now, we're gathering reports on, the, uh, on, on how many states are not in compliance. I, I, I can't even speculate because I don't have the reports yet, but I'll have them shortly. But it's, it's not perfect, and it's still going to be at least five states or so that are still not doing it properly this day. As a matter of fact, we recently had a child born in West Virginia, and it was the exact same situation as Evan, except that child was, was caught and a child is alive and is doing well now. But that child spent like three months in uh, Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. And the parents were obviously traumatized from that. The child was traumatized from that. And it's just, it's, it's just unacceptable to think that in 2009, this was unacceptable. And here we are in 2018, and it's still happening in America. You know, it's just it's just amazing to me to, to think that that is still a problem in today's world. So my goal is obviously to change that, and I'm doing everything I can. I, in fact, I travel on Rare Disease Day. I travel from state to state, and I go speak at these at these offending states. I go, I go to the statehouse events, and I make sure that their their representatives there know, you know, that this is a huge issue, and they have to take it seriously. So sometimes confrontation isn't pretty, but it's what we have to do. It's our mission, right? When your son was diagnosed in 2009, you did what most parents do when they're faced with a diagnosis on like this. You, you went online and, and searched. What did you find? Nothing. I found medical journals, PDFs of medical journals, and uh, I found case studies, and I found words I couldn't pronounce, terms I didn't understand, and chemical analogies that I, I didn't. I, I was almost worse than if I hadn't googled it and then what you find in those medical journals is the deprivation of the disease you see a, a, a newborn baby with with extreme ascites and 
you know, and with uh, Ricketts and with Jaundice and, and, and incredibly, you know, uh, sick uh, wounds on the hand, open, open sores everywhere and things, you know, you know, crazy medical images that you just shouldn't see and that are just not practical in real life. They're not going to happen now with proper treatment. That's 30, 40 years ago and they didn't have any treatments. So it was really, really scary. The one thing that was in the back of our minds, though, is that the doctors kept telling us, you know, it's not going to be so bad. The kid's going to be fine. And we're going to introduce you to other families that have this, uh, this disorder, and we'll make sure that, you, you know, you don't feel so alone. Unfortunately, that never happened. The, the hospital never followed through with that. We never got that opportunity by the hospital to meet another family, to see a child that was older. Uh, you know, so we, we, were, uh, we were alone. The one thing I did find, though, was they found one website of a family that had a child with tyrosinemia older in North Carolina. And they were really sweet, and they had their phone number on there. So we actually called them and reached out to them. And they were very reassuring. They told us everything was going to be okay. And they, re and they really empowered me to believe that the most important emotional health treatment you can give a parent at the time of a difficult diagnosis is talking to another parent. Well, how did your interaction with with other parents lead to the formation of NOTA, the network of tyrosinemia advocate? You know, it's crazy. It, 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 that happened so organically, and it was a uh, it was a gift that was given to us uh, by by God or by the fates or whatever you believe. Um, I had met that family, and they were they were helpful. And then they said, oh, I know another family uh, that we had worked with and uh, that they knew. And they, they put me in touch with that family. And then uh, we had three of us. And then so what we did was we said, oh, we should, we should find some way that we can communicate together, you know, uh, without, you know, phone calls or emails or something, something more social. So at the recommendation of my sister-in-law, of all people, she said, why don't you guys form a Facebook group called the Tyrosinemia Group? Because there was nothing on Facebook either. And we said, that's not a bad idea. So we made this Facebook group, and we made it public, so anybody could search for it and find it. There was no organization. There was no 501c3. There was nothing. It was just it was just a couple parents with this idea. Next thing you know, a month later, somebody says, oh, we're in Massachusetts. We have a child with tyrosinemia. Oh, cool. Welcome. Hey, we're in Florida. We have a child with tyrosinemia. Well, welcome. And just like that, it started snowballing and snowballing. And to this day, we still have new people that, that just find us organically on that, on that group, and it still, it still exists. It still goes. And through, through that, I had realized that we had a representation of, of, of about 100, 100 children at this, at this point around the world, mind you, not only just the U.S. So, the re, the, so this is how NOTA formed, right, is that um, I didn't, I didn't talk about this earlier, but when I when Evan was first diagnosed, I went I went a little crazy, and I was in the hospital, and they told us that they did not know what was wrong with Evan. They told us that he um, wasn't going to live for two more days. He they said he had two days to live unless they figured out what was wrong with him. And this was at a lower level hospital that we were at in New Jersey, and they said we're going to transfer you to Chop. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is ultimately who diagnosed him, and I have nothing but praise for that for that facility. So, I had just been told my child was going to die, and I 
was waiting on the ambulance, and I was alone in the, in the hospital room with my son, and he was 12 weeks old at that time, with no diagnosis. I called my father, and I said, I said, Dad, I just want to know what I did wrong in my life to deserve this kind of hell, and, you know, what kind, what kind of thing I could have done to, to deserve my child to die. And um, my dad said to me, he says, you can't understand it now, but everything happens for a reason, and you will find one day what your reason is. Well, I didn't like that answer very much, so I hung up with him, and I proceeded to flip out and trash the hospital room, like throw things across the room, like, like stuff you see on TV. Lost my temper, let's just put it that way. The doctors came in, they calmed me down, I think they give me a shot or something in my butt, I don't know, but I was, I felt, I was fine after that. I then go to CHOP, everything's fine, Evan gets his diagnosis, moving forward, right? I get a, now, now we're fast forwarding back in time to when NOTA had about 100 patients, 100 families, we'll say. I get a phone call from this father in India, and he says to me, um, I have twin daughters with tyrosinemia, and they're eight months old at that time. And he says, I do not have NTBC in India, and I need that drug for my children, or they will die. Can you help me? And I said, I'd love to help you, but I'm the same as you. I'm a father. I don't know how I could help you. And he said, please help me. If you don't, if you don't help me, my children will die. So I was, again, I was getting, again, depressed. And I, I, I work with my father. I, well, I walk out of my office, I go over to my, and I'm going over on my dad, and he says, oh, you look down, what's the matter? I tell him the story, and he says, remember what I told you? I said, what? He says, I told you everything happens for a reason. He says, now you know. He says, go get those kids that medicine. I said, Dad, I don't have any, I, don't, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And he says, figure it out. So I looked at him, I said, okay. I got on the phone with everybody that would listen to me. I got on the phone with the drug manufacturer. I got on the phone with my senators. I got on the phone with Nord. I got on the phone with Global Genes. I got on the phone with every single person and every single organization that would listen. Red Cross, I found the Red Cross of India. I, I called everybody, and I pressured, and I pressured, and I couldn't do nothing except pressure. And I got a response from the drug company. And they said, we're, we're, we're familiar with the situation. We're trying. But the only thing here is that the, the medication has to be refrigerated. And if, if it gets caught up in customs, then uh, it's, it's going to get too hot by the time it gets to the patient. And I said, that is a ridiculous excuse. And you need to, and you, need, you know, these children are going to die. and Their blood is going to be on your hands. And... Um, Long story short, about two weeks later, those children got their first doses of NTBC and continue to receive it to this day. It's interesting you bring up that story because one of the things that I found so so striking about NOTA being a, a young and small organization is its global component. There, there are great inequities in global health, and I think in many ways these inequities are amplified in, in the realm of rare disease. And many parents who start rare disease organizations are very focused with good reason on 
laying the groundwork to advance research to work towards the development of a treatment or, or cures. Your organization from its earliest point seems to have made access to treatments globally a, a core part of its mission. Why is that? I don't, I, well, I don't see another answer. I mean, here's the thing. When we attend Global Genes conferences, when we go to Rare Disease Day events, we meet a lot of families who have children that are not with us anymore because they never had a treatment. We see, we see, we see patients that are, you know, barely alive and clinging to life with debilitating disorders and there's no treatment and there's no hope for those children. In that instance, you have to do everything you can do to find a cure, to find a treatment, to find something. But in Tyrosinemia's case, we have treatment. It's not perfect. Yeah, the child's going to be on a low-protein diet for life. We follow like a PKU kind of a diet. But we have a treatment. Most of those uh, other, other, other disorders, they don't, they don't have anything. So, yeah, you've got to focus your energy on research and immediately. My instance here, I've got the treatment. I've got patients that need the treatment. And that medical uh, inequality that you're referring to is offensive to me. I think that that, that treatment should be available worldwide and it should be available without prejudice and I will and I will stand on that platform for the rest of my life. How's your son Evan doing today? <laughs> he's a rock star. He's an absolute rock star. He's uh he's nine years old. He's in fourth grade. Um, when he was six years old um, I own, I, I'm a mechanic and a technician by day so I own an auto repair shop and one of his things was he wanted to build a, a DeLorean time machine <laughs> and um, so I had a DeLorean, actually, and uh, I told him, I said, the only way we're going to do this is if you help. So at six years old, my son logged about 80 hours of real metal fabrication and helped me build this, uh, this time machine. It was one of, our, one of our greatest things we ever did together. But now, at nine years old, he wants to be a commercial pilot. So I believe that my son can be anything he ever wants to be. So I've actually uh, gotten him uh, some flying lessons, and at nine years old, he flew a Cessna 172. And even land, he did a touch and go. He landed it and took off. Um, so he's he's doing absolutely great. John Miller, president of NOTA, the network of tyrosinemia advocates. John, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Danny. It was an honor uh, being on your show. Uh, that was great. Um, I. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.